Well, good morning, and I, I bet you're wondering, what in the world are you doing, Pastor, with this Jenga set on a table? You know, I, I have to start with this because otherwise you're thinking, what is this all about? How many of you ever played Jenga? Okay, and so you know the whole idea is that you're supposed to be able to push out a block and you keep doing that, and if you keep doing that, eventually this whole stack is gonna fall. All right, so what does that have to do with the message? We're in a series, and this is the last message in this series, and it's called Be the Church. Don't just go to church, be the church. And today we're gonna take a look at 1 Peter chapter two, because Peter describes the church this way. You are living stones, living stones. And when you build a building, you, you stack stones upon stone upon stone, and you create some kind of a monument. And I want you to just read with me in 1 Peter 2, verses four to five. This is what Peter is saying as he describes the church. Coming to him as a living stone, that's Jesus, coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up in a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter begins by talking about this concept of a living stone. Actually, a living stone seems like an oxymoron to me. I mean, there's nothing deader than a stone. You know what I'm saying? Stones don't move. They don't in inherently have life in themselves. If they ever fall or go somewhere, it's because an ex external force has pushed them away or blown them down. Okay, so what's this idea of a living stone? Well, a few years ago, I had the privilege of going to Israel with a group from our church, and we had an incredible trip. We went all over Israel. We walked, I'm telling you what, I, I concluded as we walked from the Dead Sea, and we didn't walk, we rode a bus. But I thought about the fact that Jesus walked he, all the way up to the, the Sea of Galilee in the northern part of Israel and over to Jerusalem, and, and my conclusion was, Jesus was a walking man. That's why y'all need to take a walk. I mean, he was, he was busy. And as you, as, you, as you tour the land of Israel, you know what they're gonna do? They're gonna take you to a lot of sites that are pretty much rocks, stones. They, they, they used to be buildings. They were temples. Uh, and these rocks are there, preserved, because these rocks actually tell a story, and that's why they are preserved. One of the most visited places in Israel is the Temple Mount. Literally millions of people visit every year. The temple is no longer standing, but there are some rocks in the remains of the temple, primarily the Western Wall, uh, and people flock there, and you can see people praying there all the time. And in these remains, just as an example of what kind of uh, building this was, the largest rock that they could observe is 45 feet in length, 13 feet wide. It weighs 570 tons. That's a single rock. It, is, it weighs more than a Boeing 747 fully loaded with passengers and luggage. That's one rock. 
in what is now a torn down temple. Now, that's incredible. Why did they put all these rocks together and build a temple? Well, there's a story. Because God told them to build a temple, and that is where people met God. That's where, if you wanted to be close to God or in the presence of God, you went to the temple. If you wanted to offer a sacrifice for sin, you went to the temple. The temple was a place that you celebrated the goodness of God. I mean, it was central. This place was very important. And then what happens is Jesus comes, and Jesus is called the living stone. And when you think about Jesus being a living stone, once again, that's kind of an oxymoron, a stone and living, and yet it is precisely what God is trying to say. In the Bible, we read about people that created gods of stone and wood, and they were idols, and the prophets of old said, why are you worshiping a god of stone or wood? That god is dead. That, that god isn't alive and can't do anything for you. And then, in contrast, we see that God, who is alive. You know, the story of the world is the story of human beings that walked away from God, and sin came, destruction and corruption began, and this is where we live. But God sent his son into the world to interrupt death, corruption, to pay the price for our sin so that we could be alive again. You know, when you think about what was Jesus most famous for, you know what it was? For dying and then rising again. The symbol that is well known all over the world is a cross where Jesus died and that represents Jesus in our modern culture. I love Mark 10, 45, one of my favorite verses because Jesus, as he's talking to his disciples, well, before his crucifixion, he says this, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served the king of kings, the most powerful of all, the creator of all things come to earth and he's not trying to get people to serve him. He did not come to be served but to serve. This is just so opposite to what we do and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so he was gonna, he was gonna give his life as a ransom for many. What, what that means is that Jesus says, I'm gonna die in your place and absorb the wrath of God that is the judgment for sin that comes to all men. And if you'll put your faith and trust in me, I will save you. I'll give you eternal life. I don't want to perish, do you? I like the hope of eternal life. Jesus says, that, that's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to die in my death. Because I am sinless, I can go and die in your place and save you. Give me your sin, I'll give you my life. You know, Peter 
was also the preacher in Acts chapter two. It was the day of Pentecost. And this is how he described what happened. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Peter says, you know, it was impossible for Jesus to remain dead. He was sinless. He paid for what was not his to pay. And then he rose again because it just couldn't be that he would remain dead. And then here in 1 Peter, he says, and Jesus is the living stone. He's the living stone. Revelation 1.18 says this. This is Jesus speaking. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Jesus is the living stone. And those who come to him, according to 1 Peter, God, God makes them alive, and we become living stones. Ephesians chapter two, verse two, is one of my favorite verses, because it, it, it just describes our terrible plight um, and you he made alive who were dead in trespass and sins. It's a miracle. Through Jesus, we become living stones. Living stones. People see us. Now, in the, in the Old Testament, we read story after story of people who encountered God and in response to that encounter, they decided to create a stone memorial. They stood up a stone, okay? So that when people are walking by, and if, if you and I are walking by, and we see a stone stood up, we're gonna ask ourselves the question, what is that all about, right? How did that get there? And every one of these stones that have been stood up tell a story. For instance, in the life of Jacob, Jacob had a twin brother named Esau. Esau, being a few minutes older, because they were twins, he was gonna receive the blessing of the firstborn from his father. Jacob, however, with the help of his mother, tricked his father to give that blessing to him instead of his older brother. And of course, when his older brother realized that Jacob had stolen the blessing and the father said, I've got no more blessing left for you, he is so angry, he's ready to kill Jacob, his younger brother. And so Jacob, he has to run away and he runs away from home. He's headed across country. His brother is that angry. And at the end of that day, we read that he gets tired and he's out in the middle of nowhere and he lays down and uses a rock as a pillow and he begins to sleep. And during that night, as he slept, he dreamt a dream 
And in that dream, he saw a stairway to heaven. Now, some of you are singing a song you've heard about a stairway to heaven. Don't go there, okay? And the angels are ascending and descending. And God says to Jacob, you know, I'm thinking Jacob is thinking, nobody cares about me. Nobody's an advocate for me. I'm running away from home. Man, I... Look what I have done. I've blown up my family. My brother hates me so bad. I've lied to my father. My mother and father at odds because my mom is the one who was my ally and helped create this whole mess. And and, and he's running away in the middle of the night as he sleeps with his head on this rock for a pillow. He dreams this dream where a staircase going to heaven, angels ascending in December, and then God appears to him and says, hey, Jacob, I'm gonna go with you. I'm gonna take care of you. Can you imagine what a relief that was for Jacob? So it says in Genesis 28, 18, Jacob rose early in the morning and he took the stone that he had put put at his head and he set it up on a pillar and poured oil over the top of it and he called the name of that place Bethel, which means house of God. And this monument has a story to tell. Moses, Moses, remember Moses. The prince of Egypt tries to free his people, kills a man, has to run away from Egypt because he's now a murderer. He finds himself as a shepherd taking care of his father-in-law's sheep in the desert. He thinks life is gonna be forever this way. His hopes and dreams of doing something significant to to deliver his people from their slavery, that didn't work, and so he, he was done. Until he meets, as he's walking around, he sees this bush that's burning but is not consumed. It's a phenomenon like he's never seen before. Like there's this burning bush and nothing's getting, getting used up. And he walks over to investigate it and God speaks to him out of the bush and says, Moses, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. And so he does. And he has a conversation with God and God says, Moses, I'm sending you back to Pharaoh. It's time now. I want you to go and deliver your people from slavery and I'll be with you and I will help you. And then he goes in this amazing display of the power of God through the plagues. And finally, at the end of those plagues, when the firstborn of the Egyptians die, the Pharaoh finally relents and offers to let the people go. And so they go. And they they get gone, and Pharaoh comes to his senses and realizes, wow, these are my workforce. These slaves helped me build the pyramids in this great city that I rule, and now I got nobody. And so he changes his mind, and he starts chasing after them. And, And the children of Israel are now, they're up against the Red Sea, and an angry Pharaoh behind them, and they're thinking, I don't know what's gonna happen to us. And God says, I do, and he opens up the Red Sea, and perhaps a million people walk across a path that had been prepared for them under the sea. And Pharaoh comes chasing after them, thinking he's gonna get them, only to himself be destroyed in his mighty army. And the children of Israel get to the other side, and they have been, de- they have been delivered, truly delivered. 
And they go to Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up to the top of that mountain, and God himself speaks to them. And he gives them the Ten Commandments, and he says, I want you to be my people, and I will be your God. And then in Exodus 24, 4, this is what Moses does. Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 pillars in the middle of the desert at the base of Mount Sinai. And these pillars tell a story. The God who is the creator of heaven and earth has come and he has delivered his people and spoken his words to them. Joshua, one last story. Because I want you to see that when, the, when Peter uses this term, a living stone, now I know this isn't a stone, this is wood. You can debate whether this is still alive or not. Okay. Stones can actually tell a story. A very similar thing happens. J- 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 Joshua is leading the children of Israel across the Jordan River. It was time for them to occupy the promised land. But the river was at, was at flood stage. And how in the world are they going to get all of these people with their children, their livestock, across the Jordan at flood stage? Just can't happen. And then God says, let the, let the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant put their feet in the water. And the water stops flowing and builds up and the entire nation crosses and then um, um, Joshua says, I want every one of the tribes to go send a man, pick up a large stone and bring it up out of the bed of the river and we're gonna stack them together here and we're gonna create a monument and then later on when your children ask, what is that monument all about? You will tell them this is to commemorate when God showed up and opened up a path in a river that was flooded. 1 Peter 2, 4 to 5, coming to him, that's Jesus, as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up in a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You and I are living, breathing versions of, of memorial stones because you and I bear testimony to the fact that God is alive and at work and that trusting in Jesus has transformed our lives and changed us in so many ways. And he continues in verse 11 and 12, beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims Abstain from fleshly lusts which were against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your own good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. We are living memorials. God has stood us up. We're living stones. Our lives have been changed and we bear witness that God is alive and at work. 
We were once selfish and self-focused, but now we have been moved to respond to people with love and generosity. And our perspective is different than the people around us. We once held grudges and wanted to get revenge when people hurt us. But after people betrayed us and did evil things to us, we refused to be consumed with anger and bitterness. And now we, we have chosen to forgive and release them from their offenses. Jesus is the cornerstone. What that means is that all of us, as living stones, we have to line up with the cornerstone. Jesus sets the pace. He gives us the angle. He gives us perspective. He is the standard for the rest of the building. I mean, when it comes to forgiving people who have hurt us, we, we look back and see Jesus on a cross one day, I mean, crucified, in agony, humiliated, innocent, injustice, has, was, was done against Jesus. And Jesus' response as he hangs there is, he says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them? For they know not what they do. And so because he's the cornerstone and we butt up against him, we adjust ourselves. The power of the Holy Spirit within us leads us to do what we didn't do before. We're, we begin to live with a sense of integrity. We learn to love other people, to, to honor our commitments and let's, let our yes be yes. In the area of relationships, we don't live like the rest of the world. I mean, there is often the misuse of relationships in sexuality. Sexuality is used to get, not to give, but God intended it to be sacred, to bring unity, and, and yet when, when it's misused, it destroys people, and it separates people and families. And so we adjust by God's grace. We want to live as people of integrity we don't just live for ourselves. We don't, we don't just look to get what we want. We live with other people in mind. In the area of truth, we understand that there is truth. Truth is real and powerful, and if we live according to truth, we will be blessed, and we will bless the people around us. We are living stones, followers of Jesus. Sometimes we just don't fit in with the rest of the dead stones around us, and we will not blindly follow the culture. God has called us as living stones. He stands us up as a monument declaring that God is real. Salvation is available. That Jesus loved us so much he died in our place so we could be forgiven. You know, I mean, there are conversations that go on in families that are kind of like this. The kids will ask a question like, Mom, Dad, what's up with Uncle Jack? I mean, he's different than the rest of the people in our family. He's so kind and good and, I don't know, I, I kind of like Uncle Jack. What's different about him? That's what God wants us to do. He wants us to be Uncle Jack. 
You know, um, when I was a college student, or I, a high school student, I had always gone to church because my dad was a preacher. Loved church, people were great, it was wonderful. But then I was challenged by people on the outside who said, you're believing something because you've been brainwashed to believe it's true. You don't even really know if it's true. Do you think there really is a God? Do you really think that Jesus is the Son of God? And it began to bother me. And I began to look through my dad's library and I found a book by the name of Josh McDowell called Evidence That Demands a Verdict, an incredible book that changed my life. It made the faith that I had go from being my dad's faith to my faith. After studying the evidence, I decided I can't believe anything else than this. It doesn't matter what my dad thinks. I mean, it does, but now it's my faith. It's what, what I think is true. And although I've never met Josh McDowell, he became a living stone in my life through his writing. And here is his story. Josh McDowell says, when I was a teenager, I wanted to be happy. I wanted my life to have meaning. I became hounded by three basic questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? And I started searching for answers. He says, I thought that education might be the answer to my questions, so I enrolled in a university. Faculty members and my fellow students had just as many problems, frustrations, and unanswered questions as I did. Education, I decided, was not the answer. I began to think that maybe I could find happiness and meaning in prestige, but the thrill of prestige wore off uh, like everything else I had tried. It, I endured Monday through Friday, living only for the party nights of the weekend. Then on Monday, the meaningless cycle would begin all over again. I didn't let on that my life was meaningless. I was too proud for that. Everyone thought I was the happiest man on ca campus. They never suspected that my happiness was a sham. It depended on my circumstances. If, if there were... Uh, if things were going great for me, I felt great. When things were going lousy, I felt lousy. I just didn't let it show. About that time, I noticed a small group of people, eight students and two faculty members, who seemed different from the others. They seemed to know who they were and where they were going, and they had convictions. It is a refreshing thing to find people with convictions, and, and I like to be around them. I admire people who believe in something and take a stand for it, even if I don't agree with their beliefs. It was clear to me that these people had something I didn't have. They were disgustingly happy, and their happiness didn't ride up and down with the circumstances of university life. It was a constant they appeared to possess an inner source of joy. I wondered where it came from. A couple weeks later, I sat around a table in, a, in the student union with the same group. Uh, the conversation turned to the topic of God. I was pretty skeptical and insecure about this subject, so I put on a big front. I leaned back in my chair, acting like I could care less. The guy goes on to tell me that it was this encounter with a group um, of Christians that led him into eventually accept Jesus Christ as his savior. Josh McDowell was skeptical about Jesus and the fact that he was, that was proclaimed the son of God and he set out on a quest to prove that Jesus could not be declared the son of God 
and in the process, he discovered he was. And Josh McDowell became a living stone. And he impacted my life. We are not just supposed to go to church. We're to be the church. We're supposed to, I mean, God has stood us up as living stones. And people will notice. And we will be given the opportunity to proclaim the truth. You know, I think one of the most influential people in my life is a man who's been gone a long time. And I, I mean a long, long time. His name was Enoch. If you read way back in the Old Testament, Enoch is listed in the list of men who were, were born they lived, they had a child, and then they died. And you follow this pattern all the way until you get to Enoch. And Enoch was born, lived, had a child, and then it says, and then Enoch was not because God took him. Wait a second here. We have a man in this list that did not die. Is that possible? And Enoch, we don't know very much about, but we, we know that Enoch walked with God. You know what that means? That, that Enoch was a living stone that declares it is possible for a human being to walk with God, to know God, to have a relationship with God, to enjoy his presence. I mean, this is the story of Enoch. In Hebrews, it says that Enoch, Enoch while he lived, pleased God. I want to please God. Do you want to please God? I mean, Enoch stands as a living stone for me, and he says, it is possible for those who will pursue God to please God. And then in Hebrews, it goes on to say, but without faith, it's impossible to please God, for you must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And that is the verse that gets me up every day of my life and puts me on my knees in the presence of God, and I pray, and I just tell him, God, I want to walk with you, and I don't get everything right, get lots wrong, I really do. But I'm here again today because I want to please you. Would you help me? God has called us to be living stones to be an example for people around us. And the last thing I wanna, I wanna just say is that, you know, sometimes people say, well, I, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church, and so, you know, I don't need to be a part of this thing. That's not the way the Bible reads. We are living stones being built up to a spiritual house. You know what that means? You're not part of the house. You're not making the difference God wants you to make if you're not part of the church. But don't just sit here like a bump on a log. Be the church. Understand your role. Understand the potential that we all have to encourage one another and bless one another and help one another and You know, one of my often prayed verses also comes out of 1 Corinthians 14, 25. And in this particular passage, Paul 
is trying to tell the church that they need to do things decently in order so that, you know, and he's addressing a lot of very practical things that are going on in the church that brings confusion and chaos. And, and he's telling them, you know what, you, you need to pay attention to how you're behaving. And I'm not going to go into all of that, but this is the verse in verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 14. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. This is talking about the stranger. So that falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God truly is among you. This is my prayer today and is on every Sunday. God, as we come together, as this group of people that are living stones built together to create the house of God, would you please come and visit us? More than anything, we need to feel the presence of God and hear what he has to say And when the secrets of our heart are revealed, those are the things that are troubling us. Those are the things that are weighing us down. Those are the things that are confusing us. Those are the struggles that we don't know what to do with. But when the secrets of our hearts are revealed in the context of the assembly of the church, God will do that. And then we will fall down on our face and we will say, I feel like God's speaking to me. I think there's something I'm supposed to do in response to what has been discussed today. So that's that's who we are. We are living stones built together. A church is not just a destination. It is a people on mission. That's what we're supposed to be doing.